Bandwidth for This Week in Photography is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This week on the show, cameras that watch you blink, shooting under fire, and an in-depth review of the D3 by Amazon columnist Ryan Beniser, right here on This Week in Photography, number 14. Hey, everybody. Uh, we're back for yet another episode of uh, This Week in Photography, and uh, we are spread, once again, all over the U.S., uh, coming in from uh, from only across, uh, you know, a couple puddles. Uh, Scott, Scott Bourne. Hey, Scott. Hey, I'm exactly uh, 12 blocks from you, buddy, so, you know, let's... There's some puddles in between. There's there's some puddles and some uh, little stream and, and stuff like that, so, you know, it's, uh, you know... Yeah, happen. that's that's from that bum that hangs out underneath the Harrison Street. <laughs> hey, there's a big rule in San Francisco about you know you, you never want to actually step in anything wet on the street. So um, the uh, also coming in now you're down in um, in San Jose, Fred. San Jose, yep, downtown. Fred Johnson and uh, coming in from uh, uh, Hermosa Beach. Now we've got Ron Brinkman. Beautiful Hermosa Beach. Is it beautiful down there? Hi, that's what Hermosa means. It's beautiful. It must be. Ah, very good. And also coming in, and I believe from the East Coast, right? Is that right, Ryan? Right. Uh, yeah, from New York City. That's where we keep the Nikon users on the show. Um, <laughs> you, Simon, and I. Uh, so, uh, Ryan Brenizer. <laughs> Ryan Brenizer, and and you and from and you are the uh, the columnist or the official columnist for Amazon.com, right? Right. Yeah, what does that What does that mean? Well, uh, it's something that's kind of being defined as as we go. Amazon uh, has developed a blog, basically, and uh, that works on a number of different levels. And uh, and they, you know, they they, they had a gadget style blog for a while, and then they you know they approached me to be the photography guy, um, and then they actually said, "Hey, we'd like to try giving you your own spot." You know, Amazon.com/slash Ryan Brenizer, your own blog just about photography, usually about tips, things like that. And, um, you know, it, so it's, it's actually the first time uh, in any category that they've done that, even like books, you know, which you think would be their main. So it's great. It's a great opportunity, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what it means. And it's pretty cool. Now, is this a full-time thing for you or just a place that you blog or? This, it's a place that I blog. It's like, it's like a weekly column. Uh, you know, I, I make my, I'm a professional photographer. I make my money through photography. Uh, but I'm also a big geek, and I like to talk about camera stuff. And uh, I had been you know, on all these online forums helping people out, and they actually they found me and said, hey, we like what you're doing. Uh, we like the way you talk about things. So yeah, we'd like to give you a column. Uh, so it's not too bad. Great. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, experience with the D3 uh, in the, uh, soon. But uh, first, we've got a couple other uh, bits of news. Uh, we've got, we, were, we thought we were going to talk about Adobe, but we're not going to talk about Adobe until next week. And uh, Fred won't <laughs> let it. We're, we're trying to squeeze it out of Fred, but to no avail. I need, I need some cricket sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> so there's going to be a big announcement, a cool, evidently a cool announcement. That's what we're told um, uh, from Adobe next week. And so we'll, uh, it's going to come out, I think, right after, right before we do the show next week. So we'll, uh, um, we'll be able to talk about and, it next week. And apparently next week. two people on this podcast know what it is and they're not sharing with the rest of us. Not even with us. Not even with us. Death. We can't. 
Yeah. Signed a four million page NDA. I can't do it. <laughs> also in the news, uh, I, I, so I can't do it either. Yeah. Uh, also in the news, we have. Um, I, I think this is new. This is from the from the Twip Ideas. So once again, to remind everyone, if you have uh, stuff that we should talk about or stuff that we should cover, uh, make sure to uh, link it to uh, our delicious uh, tag. Tag it with Twip Twip ideas and uh, this is one of the ones that popped up that i just thought was fun because we we've been talking about point and shoots and we talk about uh uh slrs like they're the big thing and um, this is uh, phase one did you guys see this phase one uh, the 645 That's a lot of megapixels Woo, 39 to be exact 39 megapixels uh in one place and uh it is uh now this is a medium format camera is that about the going size for medium format as far as megapixels now they seem to vary between about 22 and 39, uh, depending on you know whether they're the fast 22 that can go a full frame per second or even 1.1, 1. 1, or mm-hmm. you know the high resolution ones. Right. Uh, what's also interesting about this is it's kind of it, it, it's touting itself as an open uh, framework, so you can use any digital back, any film back, uh, a lot of different Mamiya lenses on it. They're partnered together with Mamiya, uh, and it seems to me to kind of be like a blow against Hasselblad. Mm-hmm. Which has recently, you know, come out with all these uh, new cameras that are not open. That you know, all of a sudden they said, "Oh, you can't use leaf backs. You can't use anything except a Hasselblad back." Uh, you know, anymore on the on this new system on the H3D. So they're, you know, it's it. It seems to me that's kind of what they're doing here. Is they're saying, you know, come to us, uh, leaf. Come to us. You know, uh, these other digital backs, and we can, you know, it's something we can do that Hasselblad can't. Right. Have you have any has anyone shot with any of these digital medium format cameras? I've shot with the Hasselblad when it first came out, the, mm-hmm. the very first one, and it's it's pretty, it's fun. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously it depends on the kind of shooting you do, whether or not it'll be something that's practical. I mean, a lot of this is used for advertising for um, stuff that needs to be blown up a lot. Um, uh, is fashion it, photography. Fashion photography. Yeah, they exactly. actually they need a lot of resolution in the fashion photography, and, and this is going to sound like a joke, but it's actually serious because they do so much in the terms of like little squishy uh, moving pixels around stuff to reshape <laughs> contours and if you don't start with a lot of resolution it gets soft so yeah it's yeah. Uh, you're good uh, uh, product photography too anything um, you know there was a funny thing you know uh, last year when, when Nikon released the all their new stuff uh, they had the these great press photos of their new cameras and somebody went into the exit and said these weren't shot by Nikon cameras. These were shot by, you know, a phase one camera and, and everyone laughed. But if you do in product photography, anything with these big lights and you just need that resolution, then right. yeah, you're going to go medium format, even if you are Nikon corporation. Right. Um, right. So the, uh, so anyway, so that, that is out. Uh, also, um, I thought this was interesting. The, the new Pentax, uh, camera has, uh, has been released and this is a, uh, this Pentax camera evidently can sense blinks. So um, if you are, uh, uh, if it'll, it'll actually pay attention to whether people are blinking while you're trying to shoot. Uh, is this where we're, is where all these cameras are going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, some, you know, there's so many of these little things that I suspect we'll keep seeing that are probably really easy to implement once you have sort of basic face recognition technology in there. And, you know, why not? I mean, how practical they are in the real world is debatable but in terms of the marketing world these cameras are all so similar that anybody that can come up with some stupid little new idea whether it's really practical or not may as well put it out there as a marketing point and somebody will decide oh 
all of my family blinks too much, so I'm going to buy this camera. Right. And this is now this is also I mean, when we talk about a lot of this, we have a new another new uh, point and shoot camera coming out, uh, the the uh, Lumix uh, DMC FX 500. And now this is a, a new Panasonic, a new Lumix. And uh, it is uh, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people uh, like about the these Lumix cameras is that they do shoot a real 1920 by 1080. So a lot of people are using them as kind of previews. I know Stu Mashwitz over at the orphanage uses them as previews uh, and, and test stuff when he's uh, working because it happens to be the same resolution is HD uh, but this one also has a lot of uh, you know other features uh, it, it will track yeah, I, go ahead yeah I, I this this I mean you know these these little point issues where we talk about them every week you know or at least one every week and generally it's like yeah there's another one added to the list but this one's got a couple of things in it that uh, actually interest me the first is that it's got a real reasonable wide angle on it. it's got a 25 millimeter as wide as sort of the, the 35 millimeter equivalent to a 25 millimeter lens which is pretty wide um, you know quite a bit wider than your average which is like a 35 so it's uh, you know it, that I find that useful and that's something I'm always needing to have it seems like when I'm shooting in a small room or something and the other thing that I really like about it is, is it shoots full HD video. It shoots full 720p video. I think that, I mean, that seems to be, uh, that seems to be something that, especially in these point and shoots, it seems like we're going to get to a point where all the cameras do both video and, and stills. We're not going to be carrying around a little handy cam uh, that is, uh, you know, when we, ha- when we have professionals using SLRs or bigger cameras, uh, some of them might be able to do it. But doesn't it seem like we're going to move to, if you're buying a little camera for less than $500, it's going to do all of that stuff. And for $600, Ansel Adams actually pops out of the back and takes the picture. <laughs> I, I don't believe that. I don't. I, I, I don't. <laughs> but uh, it, does that seem like the direction that we're actually going? Yeah, I've seen some neat stuff where, you know, they're now talking about, I mean, I think we've already talked about this a little bit, but, you know, you may as well just shoot a short sequence of video and then go back and pick the frame you like out of it, for instance. Or, you know, right. that way you can, you can choose yourself, which is the photo where nobody blinked at i mean i think that one of the frustrating things here is the uh um is that still we have a nice camera that doesn't have raw i mean I, to me i i'm a big fan of having the option of i mean that's that was the i think we had a question that's gonna that, that came up uh that was sent into us of what's the cheapest camera that shoots raw and i'm pretty sure it's the g9 the 500 g9 well actually the the canon rebel xti but the, the whole camera um, would be uh, the G9. So the, uh, but I, I, I feel like once we get into that four hundred dollar range, we should be really expecting that, don't you think? I, well, I don't. The thing I'm not sure about is, can, you know, can all these sensors really get that much more data in the headroom? I mean, it may just be that there's no point in shooting raw because the sensor isn't able to collect much above the white point that's already set. I, I'm not sure. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that or not. Well, yeah, I, I see that when I shoot with, and, um, you know, some of the older, like, uh, Canon S models would, you know, are really cheap now, like an S6, because uh, they're used, um, and they could shoot raw. And, you know, you can bring them into the raw program, and it's great. You can change the white balance, but as soon as you bring that highlight level down, you're blowing things out. You you know, it's, it's, it's it feels like a very thin raw compared to, like, what you get with a big you know DSLR sensor but but for the um, average for the average consumer isn't the most important thing being able to change that you know we, the, the problem we had was I mean the person that one of the questions we had is you know I went out in the shot and everything was blue yeah and while they can fix that on a JPEG it would be much nicer to fix it you know in some sort of raw format uh, only, yeah. only in the sense that you have a little more you know possibly a higher bit depth or something I mean if you're just doing a slight color shift on a JPEG file, it shouldn't be that noticeable between mm-hmm. a RAW and a, and a JPEG file, I wouldn't think. 
Right. 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 But, but if you're if you're shooting in daylight and then you shoot, you know, say like I want to turn on the flash, and you know somebody looks like a Smurf because you were or you were shooting in tungsten and and you went into a you know turn on the flash, you know that's important. And also, raw tools are you know not to suck up to Fred or anything. Raw tools are so great now; it's so easy for most people to shoot in raw. Almost if you're going to do anything to the image other than just like print it straight out from the camera, it's almost just it's just as easy to shoot in raw. So why not? Uh, and, and you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody made one of these ultra, ultra compact uh, point and shoots that could get even like a half a stop of headroom in a raw file, I would buy it in a heartbeat. Absolutely, right. So yeah. it, back, back, there was a, there was a, sorry, there, there was a lot of uh, sort of back and forth over the last couple of days at uh, WPPI in Vegas. I just got back from there uh, from wedding photographers with regard to the whole raw versus JPEG and art are the tools like Lightroom and Aperture and, and others at the point now where it doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, surprisingly enough, uh, most of, if not all, of the wedding photographers, or we'll say most of the wedding photographers that I spoke with um, are still shooting JPEG. And not because of quality issues, because it, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. I think the main thing is this just speed, you know, because they're, they're shooting and they're, 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 uh, they need to fit as much on the cards as they can. And, you know, they're, they're dropping the images directly into Lightroom, doing a couple of color tweaks, and then firing everything off to their lab. So, you know, it's a case-by-case basis, I think. Yeah, I, I actually am a, a wedding photographer. I shoot like 20, 25 weddings a year. And it's, it's a huge thing for them because you're, because with a lot of these cameras, you're shooting, you know, uh, 2,000 uh, photos in a day if you want and then you want to get that right out to your clients so so for a lot of them uh, their workflow is I just want to get these proofs straight out and the easiest way to do that is shoot JPEG I'll you know set my light it'll be fine and it's good enough I, I always shoot raw I, you know uh, I have you know since basically the tools got decent enough uh, you know a few years ago um, but I totally understand it. I mean, I'll come back from a wedding with 50 gigabytes of images, and, and uh, yeah, I understand why we want to shoot JPEG instead. And ultimately, Ryan, I mean, you're competing with guys that aren't shooting raw, and potentially they're able to turn stuff around faster than you can. Is that true? Yeah, It's true. Yeah. It's true, but also, you know... Um, you know, you can you can always use it as a selling point, and I, there's there's some people that that really do sell that well and say like, oh, I massage every image. It's, uh, you know, I'm not one of these people. You know, there's a lot of people now that know just enough about the language of photography to you know be swayed by these things. So even just saying, listen, I shoot raw, so it's another thing that I do to make sure that every image is going to come out the best way possible. There's a lot, you know, to some people that is meaningless to, and but then to some people that sounds great. So there, you know, there's there's really you know there's benefits to both. I mean, for me, I always want to do something to an image. I always want to you know look at it, edit it, you know, one thing. And like I said, if you're using Lightroom, if you're using Aperture, I would even bring my JPEGs into that same program just to look at them. So it's just as easy for me to shoot raw. The only difference is card sizes. And when we get to the Nikon D3, I can talk about how I can use all these huge cards without worrying. Um, yeah, and, I can and jump in here and say this is a, a good time to mention that we have a poll on the blog. Yes, a poll that is exactly dealing with this. And the question is, is are you, uh, how are you shooting your photos? Are you shooting a mixture of RAW and JPEG? Are you shooting RAW only? Or are, you, are you shooting JPEG only? So um, definitely come up and uh, let us know how you're doing that if you're uh, listening to the show. We're kind of curious. It looks like it's, uh, it's mostly mixed between I'm shooting a mixture of JPEG and RAW and RAW right now. Is that right? 
Scott? That's that's the way it's falling off. Either either you know, it's it seems to kind of bounce back and forth. It's a pretty lively poll. We have already gotten a lot of votes, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that uh, it, it's definitely the minority of people that shoot just JPEGs. I think that's the way it's going to come down. And and I agree with what's been said about the raw tools. Uh, you know, I've been playing around with the uh, Lightroom a little bit, thanks to to Fred's encouragement and and. Particularly in Lightroom, I, I, I've seen some pretty amazing stuff that you can do very quickly. And, and one of the things I haven't heard discussed you know, so far today is you know, with the kind of presets that you can build in, in Aperture, for instance, the lift and stamp tool, similar tools available in Lightroom. I mean, if you shoot a wedding and in, let's say you shoot in three different sets of light, you shoot in the reception light, you shoot the church light, and you shoot the you know, pre-wedding portrait light. All you got to do basically is make three raw corrections and apply them to all the photos in that deal and, you know, some kind of batch process, you're done. It's not a lot of work. And I think there is significant benefit to doing it in raw because, you know, once that data is baked into the JPEG, there's no way to make any correction without making some sort of destruction to the image. Now, granted, as Ron said, there there are cases where it will not be necessarily noticeable to the user but if you start to build on that and make a change another change another change another change i think you'll you'll start to see some uh, uh penalty for that so i personally i i haven't shot anything but raw since i was able to yeah and, and so that's a and, and this is also a good time to say that we're going to get into actually what raw is and how it works and and really get uh dig into this conversation next week so this is uh this is a good setup for that um but, but we need to kind of i think we, we're getting a lot of questions about you know what does this actually mean and we, we're not going to dig that dig into that today but uh as we go into next week we're going to actually um uh really talk about what that what raw actually means and what it what it really gets you so um, in, in a more technical fashion uh, also we have a site for the week uh, this is a, a pick from ron actually um this is uh, battlespaceonline.org we'll put this in the show notes um ron can you give us a little bit of information about that yeah i mean i just came across it the other day and i think it's i don't think it's an ongoing site i think it's more of a almost an exhibition kind of a site it's collections of uh, of war photos from iraq and afghanistan and it's just really powerful stuff. I mean, there's, you know, the, the pictures on there are not pretty in any sense of the word. In fact, there's some very ugly stuff in terms of uh, you, you almost wish you didn't see it. But it's just a great collection of different ways of telling the story about what's going on over there. And it's, uh, you know, and, and just even take the time to read the surrounding materials that sort of discusses what's, what's going on because it's, uh, it's pretty intense stuff. And it's not particularly one way or the other. This is just taking pictures of what's actually happening, right? Yeah, it's absolutely slice of life. You know, what's it like to be, I mean, you know, more than anything else I've seen recently, it gives you a a much broader picture of what it feels like to be in the midst of that. Right. And now, um, Fred, you had some experience in this area in your past, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was a I was a combat photojournalist, but I, I was looking at that site. Uh, and thanks, Ron, for sending that. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna spend a lot of time looking at those images. But it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, the sort of the mission of the combat photojournalist is to document, right? Mm-hmm. Hence, photojournalism, right? So you you're documenting what you see, and you are you know there's there's entire classes in the military, at least when I was in, on 
ethics and what not to do to an image and when, where do you draw the line in terms of image manipulation and, and all that stuff? For example, you know, is it image manipulation if you just change the color balance slightly? Or is it image manipulation if there was a telephone pole and it would be a much better image if you remove that kind of thing? So, you know, looking at these images from this site, you know, they're, they're beautiful and it was, you know, depressing as well. But it was depressing for me in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of stuff that I saw that we couldn't do anything like that with. It was just you have to shoot it. And typically you're shooting slide film as well. So it's captured in the in the substrate and you're done, mm-hmm. you know, at that right. point. So this kind of stuff is the the photography that the, the combat photojournalist military wise wishes he could do you know, right. but, and that he could show to people. But you can't. Right. It's it's a it's a uh, really great uh, I mean I'm a big fan I mean probably my favorite photography is is looking at photojournalism and uh um in between something like this or or checking out world press photo you know is just a great uh, are great places to see um incredible uh photos of stuff as it's happening. I've checked out the site too. It's 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 really powerful. Just you know warn viewers. I mean it's it's really harsh stuff the kind of stuff you usually can't see in newspapers uh you know i used to be a newspaper editor and and you have the sort of breakfast table ethic you don't want to show people things that you can't show at a breakfast table and and a lot of these images are that but it's it's good that we have the web that we have different uh ways that you can show these images it's it's really strong stuff but just you know be steal yourself before you visit the site it's powerful yeah Definitely. The uh, um, also, uh, this is just a follow up on one of the conversations that we had um, uh, related related to photography and the law. And this is um, something that's very uh, popular on, uh, on <laughs> very popular on the web right now. And uh, I thought we we just mention it. Um, not really a site a site of the day, but something to also continue the conversation about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do when you're taking photos. Uh, it's the 10, 10 legal commandments of photography. And um, it says Charlton Charlton Heston not included, and this is uh, photojojo.com, and we'll put a, a direct link on the uh, on the show notes. But it's a uh, it is a uh, it's, it's pretty cool, and uh, it really just goes through a lot of what we discussed before. But it also kind of gives you some sense of you know things not to not to shoot and where you uh, where you need to be careful. So um, definitely check that out. Um, speaking of pho- photography, we've got a... Um, and, and just a reminder before we go to that, that remember, if you want to show us something that's cool, uh, Twip Ideas on, at Delicious is the way to do it. Scott, did you have to say something? Say something? Uh, well, I, I, I would say that uh, we are making a video that shows you, since I've received many an email... How to, how to blink... Yeah, they don't. They, they don't. People don't seem to understand necessarily how the delicious process works. So we're making a screencast. Great. We show you how to access that area on Delicious to give us the information. And that'll be up on the blog at twipphoto.com in a couple of weeks. So we're, we're trying to respond to these kinds of requests by just instead of answering each email with a long laundry list of things to do, we're just going to make a video and say, "Here you go. This is how to do it." Perfect. And then also uh, we have um, the Flickr challenge, which is still going on. Um, this is a uh, uh, HDR. Uh, we're st- we're, we, we did some videos on how to do HDR. And, um, and now we've been uh, challenging people to go out and shoot some. And we've gotten some fantastic photos, both of stuff that people have shot in the past and people, stuff that people are shooting now. Have yeah, you- we have a lot of pictures. Uh, it's interesting. Since we've been doing the challenges, Alex, more and more people each challenge start to participate 
And the, the number of images we had the first week was about 100. And, you know, we had 100 the second day after the challenge on this one. So it's, it's, really, it's really popular. And this seems to be a popular subject right now. You, you struck a nerve by putting up that HDR video. We've had the conversation on the show. And uh, I have to tell you that I've uh, downloaded several HDR applications, some we haven't talked about. And we will talk about in, in future shows. And you got me hooked, though, on, on Photomatic. So I, <laughs> I got to tell you, that, that is a seriously cool program for 100 bucks. And for me, I have to tell you, I have a bias. I've looked at some of the HDR images for our contest. They're all very nice. But my bias is I, want, I like the HDR images that look real. Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. I want I want to look at an HDR image and not immediately say, "Oh, that's HDR. It's so obvious." I want it to kind of have to draw me in, so I have to figure it out. And I was able to do that with several images I created using uh, that Photomatics. It's it's probably the best tool I've seen to let you get a realistic HDR um, output. So it's it's a fun contest. I hope everybody participates. We still have another week. And um, and then we're going to be uh, giving away a prize, a book at the end of that time, like we always do. So get up there to Flickr. You can join the group through, uh, through a link right there at our blog. Is this a good time to mention uh, how we're doing with that, Alex? I think we have, uh, with, with Flickr, I mean, we have 2,500 members now. Uh, 2,500 on the general group, and we crossed the 700-member line today on the critique group. Right. So, um, so we are growing quickly. Uh, and one thing I want to distinguish, there was a question, a couple questions that come up about, you know, with HDR versus ton- tonal mapping. HDR is building a, an image that has a very, very high dynamic range, but it doesn't necessarily look uh, look like it. I mean, you can only see a bit of it at a time. You can change the exposure, and, and there's lots of things. Tonal mapping is a lot of what's actually getting posted. Um, the, the process has to go from one to the other, generally. Um, so, um, but that's what mostly what we're doing is is recompressing um, that that information down to something that we can put on Flickr because Flickr, you know, you wouldn't it wouldn't do you a lot of good to view an HDR uh, without um, compressing that. It's very useful from an editing point of view, but not a very useful thing to view it that way. Um, yeah, right now monitors aren't uh, monitors aren't really capable of showing you HDR, but there's I've seen some cool stuff, you know, on some of the future trade shows where they uh, have monitors that are really able to to show you a much higher dynamic range. And that's sort of the other piece of this is when you'll be able to put this, you know, take an image that you've created as a HDR image, put it on your monitor, and, you know, the light coming through the window in the back of the scene will actually be so bright you have to squint at it kind of things. That's going to get fun. <laughs> I just want to know when I get a suntan. That's the that's the key to the operation there. Now, there a couple um, a couple more links as you're digging into the, the the great thing right now is when you when part of the challenge is is having everyone thinking about this all at the same time. So, as you're digging into this, there's another there's another app for the Macintosh called HDRI 1.0. It just got released this week, and um, it is uh, it's very simple, very straightforward, and you can download a test of that. Uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes, and um, the uh, but that's another thing to play with. I very quickly crashed it or not crashed it but didn't get useful information out of my raw photos so i have to do a little more more work on it but that was also posted to our delicious tags Uh, also there is uh an hdr uh website on the uh i mean there's an hdr in uh, how to do this in cs2 and it really gives you more of a manual approach to it Did did you guys get to see this at all uh, I we had just sent it out, but this is uh, this is a, um, a a web a website that kind of shows you a little bit about how this all kind of puts together. It just explains it a little bit more. 
and so it's it's something that's definitely worth uh, as you're digging into trying to understand tonal mapping in HDR. Uh, it's definitely um, a site to uh, check out. There's also another site. All of these sites are going to be in the show notes. Um, uh, HDR tutorial um, that it uh, has some great. Uh, great images. I mean, just incredible images, uh, HDR images to look at, as well as some tutorials on shooting and uh, compiling these. And so um, it's definitely something that, as I said, I think that this is an exciting uh, technology that I think we're going to see more and more of. Uh, I do agree with Scott. The best ones are the ones that you, you know, you just can't quite uh, figure out you know, what's actually happening there. The uh, the one thing that will really show off, by the way, as you're going out and doing these sh- these shots, one thing that will really show off that it's an HDR or a, or a tonal mapped image is some stuff that looks like haloing, a lot like you over-sharpened it. Um, those are the kind of things that you want to kind of soften away from, right? You say something, Ron? I was going to uh, say, no. yeah. Oh, okay. go ahead, Ryan. Uh, yeah, like like every great new tool, there's always uh, a temptation to overuse it, uh, and and I would just watch out for it. It sort of becomes like faddish. Then you know, these are shots that if you really overdo it, ten years later, people are going to look back and say, "Oh, that shot was taken in 2007." The same way now that if you see something with like really really thick vignetting, you say, "Boy, that's a shot from the mid 80s," <laughs> and uh, you know it, it just gets it's stuck in time. So if you if you just focus on making it a good photo and use the HDR technology to, to, to you know maybe bring out the tones, you know just make it good instead of making it an HDR thing that happens to be a photo. That's going to stand the test of time a lot better. Definitely, and I think that the important thing right now is just learning how to do it. You know, I think that the tools are going to get a lot better. Um, our sensitivity to things um, are going to get a lot better. I know that when I went to uh, when I went to Africa the first time, I, I saw all of this artwork that was there, and everything looked amazing. You know, all this handmade artwork. And uh, after going a couple times and seeing lots and lots of it, I was slowly able to discern, uh, you know, good hand done stuff and stuff that's just what we would call curio and uh but uh a lot of that just takes time of playing with it and, and having your eye become sensitive to what what's working and not working so yeah, for uh, me the main the main thing about hdr is it's really like brian said you know you, you use it if you've got a situation where you can't get the shot you want because there's just too much dynamic range in the scene there's detail in the shadows you want and there's you know detail in the sky that you want and your camera just can't capture all of that normally and that's really, for me, the, I think where HDR going forward is going to be the, the thing it's used most for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So definitely check yeah, it out. I have, oh, seen, go ahead. I have seen people um, do it in situations where they don't have to. I saw one guy take a nine exposure bracketed shot of a telephone. And I said, well, you know, you can just take one exposure and it really captures the dynamic range of a telephone uh, and, <laughs> and just do, you know, dodging and burning and, and, you know, do all these things much easier and more quickly and more realistically, you know, if you can get the entire exposure of a frame in one shot. Right. Yeah. And I know that there's been tons of, especially outdoor stuff that I've shot um, that I, that's where I've really wished, Oh, I, I wish I had a, a lot more range where I could mix and match all of this stuff um, fairly seamlessly. And I think that's where we're going to... So now we're going to jump into a discussion with Ryan about the D3. So you had some time to play with it? Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I own it. I, uh, you know, I shoot with it. I've uh, shot a few magazine stories, working on an annual report right now, a, a couple weddings. So 25,000 images at all uh, since uh, the beginning of January, and, and these are my slowest months of the year. So um, so I've gotten to know it uh, you know, uh, in and out pretty well. Uh, from a reviewer standpoint, I'd like to say you know, that it's a 
piece of junk i hate it because i think interesting reviews are always the negative ones but no <laughs> uh you know you, you want to say like oh heaven's gate you know worst film i ever saw and go on about it but no the the d3 really is a wonderful camera uh that you know sort of changes the game especially for nikon shooters uh you know who who had a really great system in a lot of ways but it you know it, it suffered a lot on the on on the image on the ISO noise front, uh, and so a lot of people, you know, who really needed that went over to Canon, um, and I stuck with Nikon even though I was, you know, really, uh, you know, doing a lot of low light stuff. I, I I got through it just trying to like get the best out of 1600 ISO images, uh, and it's really really changed the game for me. But it's also, you know, Nikon also has a lot of great, you know, other great systems that we'll talk about, and it. And it and it heightens those things like auto ISO, a really great flash system. So it kind of brings these together, uh, and it, above all, uh, takes the weaknesses uh, of the Nikon system, which there was a huge hole, uh, particularly in its sports, particularly in its photojournalism, where you had the D2X, which was uh, a really great ISO 100, maybe a studio camera, uh, you know, great in, for, for some parts of photojournalism. Um, then you had the D2HS, which was their sports camera. It was only four megapixels, which for a lot of people wasn't <laughs> enough. Right. And, and you also didn't have a real, you know, strong lens lineup for sports. You didn't have, uh, you know, the super telephotos that were there were you know too expensive they didn't have vibration reduction so in one fell swoop all of a sudden uh you know nikon you know for one brief moment not only uh had you know this this really promising new camera for photojournalism and sports in particular but they also came out with a, a huge array of lenses uh in the same so day five so, lenses so in a lot of ways do you think this this is really going after that kind of photography because it sounds like a lot of people that i've seen online at least talking a lot of sports photographers are just having a hard time not you know getting one yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, they released it during the Osaka Games in Japan. Really, I mean, you know, they said they. It's like they listened to all these forums and they said, "Here's what people are complaining about with Nikon: ISO noise too high, sixteen hundred. You know, uh, I, I shot with a D two hundred for years. I shot with a D two X and." Uh, a perfectly exposed 1600 you could do things with. I, I ran a gallery print that was right. 1600, but you had to be perfectly exposed. If you, you know, if you were a little bit underexposed, it would be muddy, it would be noisy, and you know, and then it's only 1600. Uh, so well, a lot and, of people. And, and how? And, and is is the grainless uh, the great quote unquote grainless ISO? Is it really that good? Yeah. Well, I'll. I'll I, this is definitely something. Yeah, I'm going to uh, cover. But yeah, it's. It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just shoot like I, I do not have to worry anymore about quantity of light. I worry. So, wait, wait, I worry. Are, you, are you telling? Are you telling us that you like it, Ryan? I like it. I like it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Hey, Ryan. Ryan at it. Ryan at WPPI, uh, they were the, one of the wedding photographers at the Nikon booth. Was uh, he made the claim that it's now possible to shoot an entire wedding without flash? Is that true with the D three? Well, it is true. Uh, yeah, I mean, and you can say like you know beforehand, uh, you know, it, it was true beforehand technically. Like you, could, you know, if it was an outdoor beach wedding, but really, what what happens here is that uh, flash becomes something that you use because you want to change the quality of the light, and not because you want to change the quantity of the light. So now, if I'm shooting somebody who's lit by a candle. That, you know, before I'd be like, oh my god, it's only a candle. It's going to be such a noisy image. Now I say, 
I don't have to worry about that. But what I do have to worry about is the fact that, you know, the candle is below her. So it's not an attractive light. It's like somebody being lit by a bonfire from below. So so Flash is still, and, and you know, I know you guys uh, highlighted Strobist, uh, you know, beforehand. Flash is still a great way to get better light, to get light, you know, to increase contrast, um, you know. But you really, really... You know, I've I've been in incredibly dark situations and still using my zooms. You know, places where before, not only would I, uh, you know, hesitate to shoot without flash beforehand, but you'd have to put on a 1.4 prime. Here, like I can, almost, you know, I'll, I'll take my 24 to 70 or my 70 to 200, and I'll keep it on because because um, what happens, and I, and I have some images I can show, like you know, uh, shooting somebody with a 70 to 200, the ISO had to be 12,800 because I'm shooting in absolute darkness, and the image comes out much, much brighter than you would actually see in real life. But the thing about the, the ISO noise um, on the D3, which you know, everybody touts, is it, it's not just that there's low grain, but it's also that the color saturation stays great, uh, you know, color saturation on the D200, D2X really, really got muddy. Uh, if you took a 3200 picture on the D2X, it, it just looked like it had been, you know, like run over by a truck. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was mud all over the place. Now, is, um, I have a question. Uh, there, there are some people talking online about, about the fact that that um, some of this uh, grainless is, isn't isn't it, it's somewhat of the sensor being more sensitive, but it's also uh, a lot of an, um, degraining processes that are going on within the camera that some people are saying make it a little softer have you noticed that at all no i mean actually what i uh you know what, what i was going to say is the other thing is that there's it retains a great deal of detail um uh-huh. you know if, if you compare it, something like the the nikon d300 also has made a you know um a big leap for the dx class cameras um in, in terms of its noise, but it does. You get up to the 3200, and you do see a lot of smearing. Um, you know, 3200 on the D3, even 6400, uh, you, you know, there, there's you, you start to get a little bit of noise, but there's really it really retains a lot of that fine detail. Hmm. You know, a lot more than you would think for something like ISO 6400. Now, what I've, what I've also seen a lot of people say is, of course, when they released it, it said ISO 25,600. That was what everybody talked about. Right. And some people say, well, you know, that's, that's not right because ISO 25,600 doesn't look very good. And, and it's true. You really wouldn't want to shoot portraits, uh, <laughs> on, on, you know, like, you know, uh, 25,600. Uh, it's something, it's like a Hail Mary, right? If you have to get the shot, you know, if you're a journalist and you're printing like black and white on newsprint, which is like toilet paper, yeah, 25,600 can get you there. But, um, but it's really like shooting uh, 3200 with the D2X, which was also kind of two stops above that maximum range. Right. On the D2X, people remember that maximum range was only ISO 800. And right. now, you know, that, that maximum of like, here's our recommended ISO range is ISO 6400. So even without changing lenses with anything, you're getting eight times the shutter speed just yeah. by going from the D2X to the D3. Um, so, I, I just, you know, just to be a little bit systematic you know, about this, I, I know... Yeah, there's kind of three categories of you know people I think 
listening to this, um, uh, most people are going to be people who can never buy this camera. It's a $5,000 camera. We have to keep that in mind. That's not, it's not a consumer camera. I hope you know, people still find this interesting because a lot of the features on it are going to trickle down. Oh, yeah. So when I talk about it, I hope, you know, like, I don't want people to get like, oh, jealous or like, you know, you can only take a good shot because you have a D3. It's like, these are things that next year, they're going to be on a $1,500 camera. And right. a year from, that, from now, you know, two years from now, they're going to be on a $750 camera. So, so yeah, it can do new, new things. And I think that's I think that's the importance of, of paying attention to these high end cameras is that they really are this glimpse into uh, you know what what we're going to see in point and shoots you know five years from now you know and uh, and it's it's exciting right yeah and then and then you got people on the Nikon side who might buy it um, in that case you know it's it's people who you know if if you really really need that high ISO it's going to be the best. Um, and and especially if you have these film lenses, because the other thing about it is uh, is the full frame, and I'll and I'll talk about that in a second. And the last one, of course, is people like Scott, people like everybody here who are Canon users, uh, a lot of the <laughs> ISO chasers uh, who said, you know, who see this and say, you know, uh, now they want to switch. Well, you know, some of the advantages, in fact, for them, because because the, the Canon One D three, I'm going to say, really really excellent high ISO. Mm-hmm. It's not. There's a difference. I think the D3 is a little bit better, but it's not like night and day. You know, it's it's so good the the, the Canon One D3 that it's really going to be the other things. It's for a lot of these people who uh, a lot of these Canon shooters in this price range have been shooting for years and years, and they used to, they came from Nikon years ago, and they and a lot of people were wistful and they want to go back to the system. And there's a lot of other advantages to the Nikon system that will work for some people, and for some for some other people they won't work. Um, and some of that's going to be the full frame. Some of that's going to be, which work again works for some people. Works for people who need that wide angle. People who want that beautiful 14 to 24 uh, to be a 14 millimeter. Um, mm-hmm. But it may not work for people like Scott who are shooting birds with a 600 millimeter lens. They may want that, you know, to to be you know to have a 1.3 you know time extender on it. Um, you can never have too much money, too much RAM, or too much lens. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's something to consider. If you, you know, if I can save you the seventeen thousand dollars that you know you might have to spend to switch, we'll we'll see about that. But what's revolutionary about the D three uh, for the Nikon line is that they really made some brave choices. You know, they they had three years from the D two X and yeah, they they put this R and D in, and everyone knew they were going to come out with a full frame, but. They really threw people for a loop. They said, yeah, it's been three years and we're replacing this 12 megapixel camera with a 12 megapixel camera. And, and right. a lot of people went, wow. I, I, you know, they were expecting like a 38 megapixel or something like that. But they really said, we want to look at what our weaknesses are and we want to address those squarely. And we're going to have to make some choices to do that. So, so if you're somebody who's really, really a resolution chaser, uh, if you are somebody who's in a studio, um, not only did they do away, you know, did they not increase the resolution, they did away with ISO 100. So if you're somebody who's a product photographer, if you're somebody who's dealing with these big lights, um, the, the D3 is going to be a little bit worse because hmm. it has an ISO 100 range, but it's really, it, it produces awful files, in my opinion. Um, ISO 100 is like uh, on the Canon 5D, it's, it's a low, it's not in a, a supported ISO range, and you, you reduce your dynamic range, you get really harsh highlight transitions. Hmm. 
I really would almost never recommend using ISO 100 on the D3. So, so for big studio shooters, the the only you know real advantage is uh, has 14 um, 14 bit files. You know, increases right. your tonality a little bit, and it's full frame, which means. You know, even in a studio, you can have more depth of field no, control because no. you're using a longer lens. Now, one of the questions, the same. One of the questions that people have uh, that, that that they want to talk about chasing the megapixels is, is that they say, "Well, yeah, sure, it doesn't. Maybe that it's more grainy at 22 megapixels, but when you bring it down to 12, a lot of that grain goes away." You know, does yeah. Do you yeah, think that it, one equals the other, or uh, do you think that it's just uh, just having a grainless 12 megapixel image is better than having a somewhat grainy 22 megapixel? When we're talking about the two high end Canon and Nikon's, right? Well, I think in this case, I mean, I don't think it, it equals right because it's just, you know uh, I, I think it's it's a point. If you're always talking about say say they're both making a 16 by 24 print, you know, then then you're going to have to you know you're not talking about like. Um, viewing it at 100% and taking a little crop, uh, you're going to give a little a little advantage to the thing with more resolution because it's getting downsampled or not getting upsampled as much. Mm-hmm. But you know, in general, you know, it, it's it, it doesn't come out equal. Otherwise, you could say like you know, you look at the point and shoot market and you say like. Um, you know, when you get to 12 megapixel point and shoot, 13.6 megapixel part, uh, point and shoot, you, you, there are some trade-offs when you have those smaller pixels. So, right. so what Nikon said is, you know, we want these huge pixels. You know, like uh, we want to really gather light because uh, you know every time you cut up a, a sensor into more and more pixels, um, first you have to magnify that. Uh, each pixel more mm-hmm. and secondly you're you know each division is something that's not capturing light so they said we want these big pixels that that, that captures light same thing you know the same advantage for the 5d um it's got these huge huge pixels and can capture the light well it means more dynamic range it mm-hmm. means um you know and it means less noise so so they went for that even if they weren't you know chasing the resolution Brian, um, do you have do you have any idea uh in, in terms of you know, talking about things like resolution with this camera, and this may be, may be too technical, but do you, do you know anything, uh, you know, as Nikon reporting information like how many of these pixels are picture pixels? I mean, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are white papers, and I've seen, you know, I've seen, I mean, it's, it's a standard, it's, you know, as far as I know, it's a standard, you know, Bayer sensor, uh, you know, and I don't want to get, like, too far off into it. I've seen, I've seen these papers where people are like, what the D3 is really all about is, you know, it's electron quantization and things like that, and I, you know, but, um, you know, as far as I know, it's a, it's, a, it's you know, they did... Uh, in terms of their sensor technology, they said, you know, they did two things, you know, like everybody says um, now, the big thing with sensors is we want to reduce that space in between. We want to make sure that, um, you know, that as much of that sensor um, as possible is capturing light instead of doing useless things. Uh, so Canon does that with, you know, every time they come out with a higher resolution sensor, they say, well, it's still, you know, the pixels are still have as much uh, useful space as, as say, the, the older camera, even though it has more pixels. And, and, and Nikon did the same thing. They said, you know, basically more, more space of it, you know, it's capturing more electrons, more space of it is useful. Um, you know, in the end, like, it's it's fascinating from a technical point of view, but in the end, I just you know I like to take the picture and say, wow, uh, and you know, 
when however that you know I'm, I'm the kind of person that i just like to you know uh, you know put the key in the car and, and see how fast the car goes more than you know figuring out you know how the drive shaft is um and and really really the d3 is has changed photography for me um mm -hmm. So I'll give you I'll give you some examples of you know of how it's changed things in the field for me. So, uh, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know there are like you know three million weddings a year in the U.S. alone. So, right. to try and take a wedding photo that has well, I mean, never and, been taken, and, before, and I think a, a lot of this is I mean the people who are going to be the first ones jumping on this it seems like are going to be wedding photographers, they're going to be sports photographers, photojournalists. So the people who don't that tend to not want to run around with a with a flash, right? I mean they're they're the ones that where this is really going to make the first impact. Yeah, it's gonna. I mean, it's definitely. I mean. Also, what, what's good for them is that these are people who don't want huge files. I, right. I knew Nikon was going to come out with a full-frame camera. I thought it was going to be 24 megapixels or higher, and I said, wow, my wallet's going to be safe because no way do I want 24 megapixels if I'm shooting you know, 2,000, 3,000 photos a day, and none of those are going to be printed larger than you know, 20 by 30, and, and most of them will never be printed larger than 8 by 10. Right. So, so why would I... You know, like god forbid and then they came out with this 12 megapixel camera some people said oh god it's only 12 megapixels i said thank god right. only 12 megapixels you know i'm not going to have terabytes and terabytes of images um and and so that's that's definitely wedding photographers it's definitely photojournalists i mean a lot of these photojournalists you know are only shooting like jpeg medium size anyway because they're just shooting for a newspaper right um so, so it's it's definitely definitely optimized for them uh and yeah for me now are so, you are you are you writing a review for this, or have you reviewed it on on Amazon? Um, I'm 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 going to. I'll I'll, I'll uh, you know th this has sort of been a long time coming for here, so I was kind of right. holding off on it before I could give my <laughs> my comments here. Uh, and I, I felt like the the Matt Damon, uh, you know, to Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, you know. <laughs> Wait a minute, yeah, we uh, got we got a we got our very first ever Twip exclusive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think so we, should so, a, we should have a sound effect for that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll come back, yeah. The, you know the, the the morning show. Yeah, I'll have a klaxon or something. Um, hey, hey, Ryan, I got a question for you. Yeah. The um, you know, going back to what you said about being able to shoot a wedding or some low light situation without a flash entirely. Do you do you think we're going to start to see scenarios where photographers are moving more towards carrying around small, just regular lights? You know, battery powered LED lights or something, non flash, just something where you can sort of set them up and, and use those instead. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's entirely possible. Uh, I mean, you can always, uh, you know, uh, Scott, if you want to, you know, take note of this, you can use an iPhone as a key light now. Uh, I've done it. I've done yeah, it. it's it's totally uh, it totally works. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, the whole progress in photography, uh, you know, as ISO has gotten better and better, first in film and then you know in digital sensors, is lights get smaller. Same thing in, in film. You know, like you don't have to melt people under under hot lights as much um, and it happens in flashes too one of the reasons that strobist is so big right now is that you can use these small flashes uh, in a lot of new ways because you can shoot at ISO 800 and still get good results even with the flash um, so that extends a flash range and that's and then one of the things I've been using the D3 with is I use it a lot with flash. I'll shoot at uh, ISO 3200, sometimes up to ISO 5000 with a flash. 
what that means that you know um, I shot in this uh, really really this place called the University Club which is this really really um, old boys club you know a high dark mahogany ceilings so at ISO 5000 I can bounce a normal flash off a 100 foot high mahogany ceiling and and it, you know if the ambient light is dark enough that's my light you know it, and uh, you know and so it's not just about leaving the flash at home it's about using flash in new ways hmm. um, and and also you know the same th- you know like you said with continuous lights yeah you're not going to need uh, the, the only reason you would need that is to overpower other light you know but if that's your only light you can use almost anything interesting you use a digital watch well hopefully uh hopefully i'll get to now uh, fred you still have one or are you testing one oh yeah yeah i still have one we had a uh we had a model come in a couple weeks ago um it, we just put a little studio in for testing here at adobe and uh one of the photographers had his his 5d there and he had the light set up was shooting her and i was in the back of the room with my d3 shooting um using the modeling lights and and i got some amazing images it's just the, the camera never it, it just never ceases to amaze me how how much it changes the game you know and, and there was a, a photographer also talking you know you guys mentioned using your iphone as a as a key light or a fill and uh there was a photographer that yesterday that actually used that in his talk he was shooting on the beach somewhere in santa monica when the sun had already gone down so you just had that sort of orange light shooting off over the horizon and uh he used his verizon phone to light the model's face up and then <laughs> shot and Damn. got the shot you know it was an amazing shot so yeah. you know i'm i'm still highly in love with mine i just need i need you know some lenses like mr Bourne has and <laughs> <laughs> so we need we need That's only listen. the that's we all need to load problem. a bunch of different, load a bunch of different uh, color balanced images into our iPhones so that we can uh, yeah, exactly. do color balanced stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have, yeah I absolutely. Yeah. I actually have a picture in my iPhone, you know, folder that's just called light, and it's just, uh, it's just white. Anyway, uh, my problem, you know, I, everybody sends me these emails. I've gotten like hate email because I'm thinking of switching to Nikon, which I find kind of funny. And then I get, you know, other people from Nikon saying, yeah, come on, join the crew. The problem is I got all these red stripe lenses sitting in my bag and replacing all those is is not something I look forward to. So I'm going to hold out and hope that the rumor on the 5D Mark II is true. Yeah, I mean it's still an issue because what the the Nikon Super Telephotos are really excellent now, but they're still a lot more expensive than the Canon telephotos. So, uh, except for you know uh, really big sports agencies and things, um, you know you're, you're still probably going to see a dominance just because you're talking about thousands of dollars uh, difference between the between the lenses. Um, I just want to quickly, if we have time, you know everyone talks about the the, the high ISO quality mm-hmm. uh, with the D3. I, I want to talk about a couple things that are actually bad or you know less than perfect about the D3. Yeah, definitely. Yes, and, please and also, do. Please do. Please do. Bring us back to reality. Yeah. Bring us back to reality yeah, back, here. Back to reality. You've been okay. floating up in the okay. clouds. I'm hanging up now then. If you <laughs> <laughs> and again, yeah, I have to say less than perfect again, but, uh, you know, because I use this, I love this uh, camera. But I will say, as I, first of all, as I mentioned before, the low settings, ISO 100, ISO 160, 125, they're really nasty. Uh, they, they have uh, less dynamic range. You actually, in my experience, have less highlight capture than shooting in the same light at ISO 200. So even, you know, not only is there less dynamic range, but there's so much less that you're clipping highlights at ISO 100 in the same light that you're not clipping at ISO 200. So unless, 
for for almost any reason just stick to ISO 200 and you know and, and don't go below it unless like you're you're you know have to have a really long shutter speed in the daytime or something um Secondly, the image buffer is, I mean, it's not bad. I come from the Fuji S5, which has an unbelievably bad image buffer. It's like using film. You know, if you need to chimp a shot, you have to first, like, get a cup of coffee or something. But it's not that great on the D3, um, especially if you're using 14-bit RAW and shooting JPEG and, like, you're really filling up that pipeline. Even if you're not shooting sports, I can be, you know, there with, you know, doing portraits and really get in the mode and be like Austin Powers and like, that's it, that's it, and, and clicking away, and it'll lock up for a few seconds. So for a sports camera, you know, uh, the fact that its image buffer isn't, you know, world class can be a big thing. If you're, you know, if you're shooting for a few seconds and then it locks up and you miss that big moment, it's something to think about. Now, if you're just shooting JPEG, if you're shooting smaller things, it's going to last a lot longer than if you're shooting the huge RAW files, 14-bit plus the JPEGs. But in my experience, I've locked up under normal shoots. Uh, lastly, a lot of people are going to notice um, it uses the same autofocus as the D300, which is a DX size camera. And what that means is that the frame coverage really doesn't cover all that much. Um, you know, it, and it's been enough for me in most in circumstances, but you're going to do a lot more uh, focusing and recomposing than you would maybe if you're shooting with a 1D3 that has an AF that's sort of desi designed for that sensor size. So you have to, like, you know, capture, and then if you really want that that uh, image of focus to be on the very edge of the frame, you have to capture, hold the focus lock, move it back. You know, and if you're if you're shooting women, um, and you know you're trying to get a full body shot of a woman, that's when they think you're looking at their breasts because you focus on their eyes, and then you move the camera down, and they're like, "What are you doing?" And it, it causes a whole issue. <laughs> um, so you got to watch out for that. But no, in general, um, yeah, there's a lot more focusing and recomposing. Um, Lastly, uh, full-frame sensors in general tend to be dust magnets. Same thing with the, you know, this is not unique to the to the D3. It's the same thing uh, on the 5D, um, you know, uh, but there's a lot more sensor, a lot more way to get dust, but what happens on the, D on the D3, unlike the D300, unlike a lot of cameras these days, is it doesn't have an ultrasonic dust sensor. Don't know why, yeah. It does not, it does not. The D300 does. Um, I guess they couldn't figure out in time. I'm sure if they have a D3S, um, you know, it'll it'll have that. But no, you you know, if you buy a D3, you also had better buy a desk cleaning mechanism. Mine is already covered. That um, sigh here is each hundred dollar bill in my wallet feeling lots. <laughs> about being right where it's located. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So if, so if I save you the, you know, the 17000 you can give me a cut. We'll see. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, price and weight. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's actually, you know, when you think about it, um, it's the same price as the, you know, about the same price as the DX camera that it superseded. Now, that's kind of revolutionary. It would be like if the if Canon released the 5D and it was like $1,800 instead of $3,300 when it was released. But it's still a $5,000 camera when you also have the D300, which is a really excellent camera for only, you know, $1,800 or less. So, and it's not I, just I that. See, I don't see the prices being at all high based on the camera's specs. Right. Right. I, I mean, if you look at one, what Canon's trying to, yeah, Canon's trying to get nine grand out of the the One DS uh, Mark III. So, 
Right. From the perspective of the camera itself, it's actually in some ways revolutionarily low. But if you're talking to somebody, um, you know, if you're talking to most people, you know, no $5,000 camera, you know, price is always going to be an issue. Because you also, because it's a full-frame camera, you've got to make sure you have good lenses. I know somebody who's using a D3 with a DX lens as, as their main lens, and I'm just like, what are you thinking? You know, walking around with a D3 with, and an 18 to 200 DX, you're just you're you're just throwing it away. There's there, there's no reason for you to have spent five thousand dollars on a camera when you should have just gotten a D three hundred. So, um, yeah. So so you you may have to replace a bunch of your lenses, and that's it. So if your budget is just five thousand dollars, and that's all you can spend, the D three may not be for you because you need to you know you need to also make sure you have the lenses that support it. Um, and the, and then the second thing is weight. You know, again, it's not just the camera; it's these lenses. I used to, when I was uh, using DX cameras, uh, an 85 millimeter lens usually got me long enough to where I wanted to go. Now, you know, that doesn't work. I need to either have a 135, which is a little bit heavier and slower than an 85 1.4, or I, I just tend to use a 70 to 200. It's a right. lot heavier lens. I'm carrying it around all the time, every day, and it, you know, I feel it. I really feel it at the end of the day. And I, I go to the gym like five times a week. But, um, you know, if if I'm carrying around for 12 hours, you know, 10 hours, a 70 to 200 and a D3, you know, you just got to think, you know, is this the camera for you? You know, maybe it is, but it's not the camera for everybody. A lot of people are going to be better suited for a much lighter camera like the D60 or even a pocket camera. Um, it, you know, it's a specialized niche. So that's all the things I could think about of what was bad about the D3 when I was like, you know, sitting there. And, and it's really a short list, um, but yeah. I, you know, I had to, uh, I had to come up with something. But there was also <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, There's also some good things that people don't talk about a lot. Um, you know, just very. We don't want to hear them. We don't yeah. want to hear them. We don't. No, no. <laughs> no. We really don't. don't hear them. Uh, interestingly, out of all this stuff, uh, the only thing when I'm talking to a client that I really talk about in my equipment, because it's not, you know, because I say it's not about the equipment, it's about you know the photographer. But but the big thing is the dual compact flash slots, because um, what that is yeah. is it's an yeah. instant. Um, for me, I use it. I have a I have a J, you know I write raw to one JPEG to the other. And it's like an instant raid array, you know, like you are backing up your shots as you take them. So for a wedding photographer, that is so important because you can't say to these people, hey, why don't you get married again next weekend? Uh, I, you know, I lost my card and, you know, it got corrupted. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, so it's something you can say, like, every step of the way, I'm trying to back up my images. You know, it, you know if a card goes bad, it doesn't matter. It also allows me to use much larger cards. I, I can use 16 gigabyte cards in the D3, no problem. Um, a lot of times, you know, you'll say to people, oh, don't use the big cards, use the smaller cards, because then if one fails, you haven't lost so many files. But if you're backing them up all the time, you can use 16 gigabyte cards. You can use 32 gigabyte cards when they come out, and you don't have to worry about it because you're because you're you're backing them up. You know, if the card fails, you have a backup. So that you actually, you know, it gives you flexibility in a lot of, a lot of ways. That's a huge thing for me, and it's something you don't you know hear about quite as much. Um, what so? Uh, 
That is, I mean, that's, I think that hopefully now Canon is going to give us uh, an excuse or, or other people when they have a big release, uh, they'll give us an excuse to have such a long segment on, uh, on covering one single camera. I know some of our, some of our Canon listeners are probably like, okay, I don't want to hear any more about this. <laughs> yeah. And would they just yeah, move on? Like, just move on. What? Yeah. We had to get it all out of, it's like ripping off a bandaid. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's you, all over. This is it. Over the Nikon D3 and now, you know, now we had to get it out of the way and now, you know, it'll all be on the. Uh, yeah, the next a, it, it was a good review, Ryan. Thank, thank, thank you so much, Ryan. And you're gonna have, and you're gonna have, you're gonna have this in some relatively similar form on Amazon.com sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. I put it up. Uh, I put it up this week. Great, great, great. So if you want to um, see uh, more of that detail, definitely check that out. A couple. Uh, have also, a lot of photos because oh, again, perfect. Yeah, this is a podcast, but yeah, I've t- obviously taken a lot of photos with it. They can show you what I'm talking about. How you can use like tungsten light in new ways, you know, uh, balancing the light and things like that. So awesome. Um, yeah. Oh, that'd Amazon. be great. slash Ryan Brenizer. It's an impossible name to spell, but <laughs> well, we'll have it in the, the we'll have a link in the show notes, so we'll be able yeah. to um, hop through that. And uh, we're going to jump into a handful of questions. Um, and before we uh, reach the end of the show here, uh, one question that I thought I, I just think you know some of these are, are uh, questions that I just think we just want to make sure we cover. If if we get the question, I feel like we haven't talked about it quite enough. Um, which is uh, we keep on talking about lenses being faster. Uh, than another so this is a fast lens or not a fast lens um do you guys want to talk a little bit about what that means for people sure Um, a a fast lens means that you have a lens that has a very wide opening in the aperture which allows it to gather in more light than a slow lens which will not have as equally large um opening and the way you determine that is by the f-stop so i have a canon 50 millimeter uh, 1.2 lens. It's very fast, meaning that I can shoot near dark with that thing, and and I it'll gather enough light. And if you take the Canon 50 millimeter 1.8, it is not as fast because the aperture won't open up quite as wide. So that's all we mean when we say fast lens. Uh, a 2.8 is faster than a 4.5. A 4.5 is faster than a 6.3. In other words, the lower the number, the faster the lens, and it just has to do with how much light the lens can gather. And would we, would we really consider a 2.8 kind of the the slow end of fast lenses? You know, I mean, For a zoom, they would be, they're as but, fast as zooms get. Right, right? and then once you get into primes, yeah. And prime, by the way, when we're not to, to introduce nothing, prime is a is doesn't have a zoom. It, it is a single focal length. Um, which tends to allow you to uh, um, have a much uh, open that up a lot further. Yeah, it, it's really confusing. I mean, uh, fast lenses in ter- you know in terms of inducing faster shutter speeds, they're not always particularly speedy. The you know the first iteration of the Canon eighty-five millimeter one point two, very very fast. But it was also, you know, it, it focused very slowly. So it's not speedy, but it's fast. It's This is the world of <laughs> photography jargon. Right, exactly. So it is important to understand because everyone will talk about having fast glass and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. So it's good to know what that means. And hopefully we've covered that. If, if we haven't, ask another question and we'll move on from there. Uh, another question, and that was uh, Chris uh, Whitpan, and, um, uh, who also had some great uh, ideas for contests. I think we're going to use some of those later. Uh, Nick Shulman asked, um, I need a USB card reader for my Mac. Uh, which one should I get? Any particular brand, future-proof? Do you guys have any specific USB readers that you like? I've got a, I've got a SanDisk. I, one important thing, and I don't know how people can know this for sure, but I have bought card readers in the past that 
I, my Mac just didn't want to recognize all the slots in there. Right. But I don't know how you can, other than just, you know, finding somebody else that's got the same kind and knowing that it works on their particular machine, I don't know how you can necessarily tell in advance whether it's going to work for you or not. Right. I know, Alex, you, you recommended a... I have a Sony, uh, a Sony multi-reader, and the only... I had to buy another one, and I bought the same one, but the one thing that you have to keep your eye on also is the support for SDHC. Um, that's the high-capacity SD cards, and um, the... Uh, there are the, I couldn't figure out. I bought this new camera, and I suddenly couldn't... It wasn't reading anything, and I, re, and I finally realized that... Um, uh, that the issue that I had was the, uh, that the, the, the Sony that I had bought, the older one, and it, it's one of those ones that has like, you know, 40 slots in the front or something like that. And you pop it in and, um, it, uh, uh, it was nice and fast. You definitely want USB two um, for speed, uh, and uh, but it didn't recognize it. And so I, when I got a new one, it, it recognized the um, the SD uh, the SDHC, which is important. Now the one that I use, um, it depends on what you use. Uh, as far as um, there's a USB one that you can plug in if you're using a laptop. Um, the other thing to remember is is that a lot of companies make um, either PCM PCMCIA. I don't. I can't say it anymore because I don't have one. But um, P slot, PC slot, the PC slot. They have PC slots and they also have express card if you have a newer mac i have an express card um of a sand disc the express card pops in and i just leave it in all day i mean i just that's i just it's just in my computer and it will read sd sdhc it will not read compact flash which i'm hoping just goes away now what what does the d3 use uh the, 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 in itself yeah, yeah there are two two cf cards i also want to yeah. say there's also there's USB 2.0. There's high speed and there's full speed, and mm-hmm. one is much faster than the other. I'm try- I think it's. Uh, I don't know if uh, if any of you guys know. Like one is actually very slow and one is fast. Yeah, and um, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure, but it's. Uh, um, but yeah, the Sony one was really. I, I was really happy with. Um, I think the SanDisk always makes good stuff. Um, anyone else it, with any probably, opinions? It's probably worth taking a step back too, and because uh, the question I've gotten from people is, why do I need that? Because you know most cameras have. Uh, the ability to just hook a USB cable directly into it and download from the camera directly. And usually the main reason is it's still a lot faster. To well, pull it's, it off. I actually have a couple reasons. Uh, one is is that I'm it, it burns your camera battery much faster. Yeah, so there's somewhere where your camera's not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I charge my I, I shoot a lot of photos on my on my uh, 20D and uh, and I don't. I, I charge the. I mean, I have a second battery that's always charged, but but I don't go through the batteries very quickly. And I and there was one point where I lost my USB card or my USB reader, and I couldn't believe how quickly I suddenly had to start charging again. You know, and so um, you're really burning up up your battery. It's a lot faster, and it's also just a lot more convenient. I think um, to be able to pull that out. Um, any, and they're cheap. It's worth getting. I mean, they're they're cheap enough that it's you know. Just think of time saved is worth doing. Yeah, yeah. It's these are all like thirty. Or, you're, you're, for most of these, you're talking about um, thirty or forty dollars. Um, you know, for most of these readers, uh, don't. What I found is definitely when you buy the real cheap ones, the nine dollar ones, the fifteen dollar ones. What you're really buying into is uh, a USB one or a much slower USB interface, and so um, it usually is uh, uh, not worth. It's worth spending the extra twenty bucks and getting one that's a bit faster. Uh, other questions that we had, um, you know, uh, as we were as we were going through some of this stuff, was uh, this is a person. This is a person who was a very amateur photographer for years, but now they're interested in getting a very nice DSLR, and they wanted to know which cameras, uh, Nikon and 
uh, Nikon and Can- which cameras, Nikon and Canon in, in particular, are the full size versus the uh, the smaller size, and uh, which 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 obviously we just talked about the D three, uh, we've talked about the five D. Are there any other cameras that uh, are full full sensor size? Full frame. Or full right. frame. They're all as far as I know, only Canon and Nikon make full frame sensors. Although I believe the new Sony and um, uh, I, maybe the new Sony. Yeah, the new Sony is going to have a full frame, but by and large, there are a few, uh, very few full frame sensors out there. And frankly, you know, if you're just getting started in photography, you don't need a full frame sensor most of the time. Also, in the uh, uh, another question that we got here, and this is more of a creative question. Um, this is from uh, Belisario, and uh, he said he would appreciate a combined view on format and style of individual images. He said almost every book he sees talks about the golden mean, two third frame, uh, uh, and he's, he's, he's mentioned isn't that sort of an old fashioned approach? Because I can see uh, where it's coming from, but nonetheless, isn't the rule mostly used by eighty percent of it seems like it's used by everyone. Um, and, and his real question is maybe you can shed some light on breaking this rule and producing something new. So why do we have all these rules that we kind of keep in our back of our head? Do you guys pay attention to those rules all the time? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, kind of, I, I mean, was going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Yeah, and you no. know, kind of do. Compositionally, I, I don't the rule of thirds. I mean, compositionally, those, those kind of things should just sort of be in your head, you know, right. looking at a scene, you don't think, Oh, what's the rule of thirds? And I should place my subject, you know, it's just, no, there's some cameras that'll actually put that grid up on your, when in your viewfinder, you know, to try to help you uh, make sure you compose that shot. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that Fred's exactly right, that it, it becomes, it's more like you kind of got to know it and, you know, keep it in your head for when you're starting out. But at some point it becomes so second nature that, oh, that, you know, the composition feels about right if I do that. But I think the important thing is you, you can always break that rule. If there's something in the frame that contributes to not, you know, doing it, doing it in that fashion. And that's, I think that's the real key issue. Does anyone else have any uh, personal opinions about how how they approach these quote unquote rules? I mean, I think uh, some of these rules are are in, open to interpretation, but I, I agree there are some basics that you generally don't want to. I mean, you don't want to bullseye most images. You don't want to have merges. You don't want to split the horizon in half. And these rules don't come from photography, by the way. There's a, a, a general misconception that these are from photography. Most of these rules come from art history if you study art if you that's a great thing i recommend that photographers do look at the old masters and the paintings and where they you know how they work their compensation their their compositions and you'll see that that these rules started with them not with uh, the camera well and i think a lot of it is an observation of what works you know what is aesthetically pleasing i mean and i understand that some of that is is something that we've grown up looking at but but um you know when you have there are natural things that we think of if you put if you don't give someone nose room for instance which means that there's the blank space behind the subject is bigger behind their head instead of front in front of their head it makes you uncomfortable <laughs> and you may want to do that and that's when you break the rule is that you know why you're breaking it Right. Rules are great uh, to get you thinking about what looks better. You know, when you first start out and say, maybe there's a better way than just taking a photo and somebody's head is right in the middle. But then sometimes you'll think about that and and you'll think a bit more and say, and you just compose it in your own way, you know, and and you kind of move beyond it. So it's, they're nice to know, but 
they're always nice to break too definitely so uh, if you have any other questions out there make sure to come up to uh, twipphoto.com that is our blog and there is a link there where you can click on it and ask us a question we can't of course get to all of the questions so we get we're getting more every week um, I know because I'm the Scott's emailing them all to me so um, or not even all I think Scott you're kind of filtering those down for me aren't you I, if you would like, I can email them all. No, no, that's okay. I get, I get most of them. And, uh, and then we only get to a fraction of those. And so, uh, anyway, uh, but thank you so much. It's really great to get this information. And even if we don't ask your question, a lot of these questions, um, I, I read every one that Scott sends me and Scott reads all of them. And, you know, this does affect how we do the show. So, um, you know, even if we're not, uh, calling out your question specifically, it's really, really important for us to get them because it gives us an idea of where we're going the right direction or where, what, what we should might, might want to cover in the future. So um, don't we, hesitate. We use, them to, we use them to spot trends. I mean, if, yeah. I get, if I get 10 questions on sensors, then you know I'll ping Alex and say, hey, we might want to talk about sensors. A lot of questions this week on sensors. Or you know, it's just the generic flow of the show can be determined by you know, a consistent uh, number of questions on, on one topic. So even if we don't get to you individually, you are impacting what we're talking about. Definitely. So definitely uh, come to the blog and, uh, and ask some questions. So next week we've got, uh, we're, we're going to discuss raw. So we're going to get into uh, really the technical ends. We got into a mini raw discussion uh, today, but uh, we're going to, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper next week. So uh, definitely stay tuned for that. Also, we've got more movies coming up between the weeks. Uh, we've got uh, Fred, Fred, Someday is going to actually get a uh, removing uh, people. I knew it was coming. I was <laughs> you know, when I do that video, it's going to be stellar. Lord of the Rings. It style. better be. It better be. That's all. <laughs> That's all I got to say. You know, so uh, so Fred's working on that one. He's uh, but we we did post uh, part one of Scott's tripod movie over the over the last week. And part two is coming out uh, over the weekend. Uh, and uh, and so um, definitely stay tuned uh, for that. Uh, I'm cooking up some more videos. I don't really want you know. I got the Pano one out. And by the way, I, I think we, we called it Photo Merge uh, in the in the uh, in the blog. It's really building panos using the Photo Merge function, um, which is a little different than what Fred's going to talk about. And so, uh, but if you want to see that that Pano now, if you really want extra credit, you can go out and shoot HDR panos. You know, that's the you know that <laughs> that's taking that all the way uh, all the way out there. So uh, actually, one, one of these weeks we should have a combo assignment week where you combine each and every assignment we've ever given you. Into the <laughs> you have to shoot a pano HDR of a sign. <laughs> yeah. A sign about rocks. I think. A sign about rocks. A sign that's over yeah. rocks. Yeah, that, that would be uh, that would be ex- definitely some extra credit. <laughs> um, I think we've covered a lot of tips this week. Do we have any other ones that we want to share um, uh, with a anyone? Just a single tip. This, I, I want to give a quick tip based on this iPhone conversation. There's a product by a company called Wimberly mm-hmm. called the the Plamp P L A M P, and if you uh, want to use your iPhone either as a camera on a tripod because you can't mount it on a tripod or if you want to turn it around and make it a key light, I suggest the Plamp. The Plamp is a little clamp on one end and a little clamp on the other. So you can clamp one end to anything like a table, a chair, a rail. And then the other end has a clamp that you can set the iPhone in. If you need it as a tripod, you can use it as a tripod, steady the iPhone and take your shot. The way I've used it is I have my little white picture that's in my file there, and I'll, I'll actually put the plamp right underneath the, into the side of somebody's face, give them a little fill light, and it, it's just like having an assistant standing there holding an iPhone. So it's called the <laughs> plamp. It's 
not very expensive. It's from a company called Wimberly. Wimberly.com will have a, a link to it. So uh, check out the plant. It's also very good, by the way. If you, it's actually what it's designed for is steadying things like flowers in the field. If you're in a windy day and you want to steady a flower so that it doesn't blow with the wind and you can get a good shot. It, it, it's got a multitude of functions. I almost always have one with me on any kind of photo shoot. Perfect. Now, uh, and, and Scott, where can people, uh, where can people, where's the best place for people to find you on the web? Well, uh, you know, I, um, I, I hang out at applephoneshow.com where I do an iPhone podcast and uh, I run a company called Padango Productions here in San Francisco, but my pictures can be found at avianstock, A-V-I-A-N-S-T-O-C-K.com. We'll have that in the show notes. And Fred, Fred, where's the best place for people to find you? Well, you can find uh, my very cool products at uh, Adobe.com. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, secret file. <laughs> Free 30-day trial available, I'm just saying. Um, and uh, <laughs> But you can follow me at FrederickVan.com. Ron, where can people find you? Uh, look me up on Amazon and buy my book. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We like to call it, just to search for Good Book of Brinkman. Yeah. <laughs> kind of photography-related pieces in it, sort of. <laughs> That's digital compositing, uh, or the art and science of digital compositing, right? Yeah. And it's a great, uh, if you pre-order, are... Pre-order the second edition, how about that? Yes, well, the, 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 if, if uh, anyone is uh, getting into visual effects and, and uh, into, into real compositing, uh, uh, it is a, it's a book you have to have in the library, so um, we, uh, we almost force-feed it. To, to Pixel Core members. So, uh, and Ryan, uh, w- once again, where can people find you? Uh, Amazon.com slash Ryan Brenizer is my blog. Uh, my commercial photography is at just RyanBrenizer.com. Um, and there'll be a link if you can't figure out how to spell it. And uh, until next week, thanks to everyone for uh, stick- sticking with us uh, for another This Week in Photography. Lens caps going right back on. <laughs> <laughs>